opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. Good afternoon and welcome to One Hour at a Time. Recovery begins with education and host Mary Woods is here to educate individuals and families and provide support through the recovery process. Now here's your host, Mary Woods. Hello, um, this is Mark Green with Voice America. I'm standing in for Mary who's away on vacation today, but I'm delighted because I have the chance to interview Doug Turkington um, about cognitive behavioral therapy and um, the treatment of um, psychosis in particular. Um, Doug has just released um, a book called Back to Life, Back to Normality, which is a treatment um, and general guide for people with um, who are going through cognitive behavioral therapies for schizophrenia, but has previously produced very important books for the field, including cognitive behavioral therapy um, of schizophrenia, and has been doing important research um, for many years, um, and is at um, University of Newcastle in Tyne. Um, and Doug, um, welcome to the show. Thanks very much, Mark. It's very nice to have the chance to speak on Voice America. Um, so, Doug, let's start off um, by talking a bit about the causes of psychosis um, and some of the different models that, are, that have been around over the years, um, which preceded the cognitive model, which has really, take, really done such an amazing job on turning the optimism of the field, I believe. Um, so what kind of models are, uh, have been around and... How does the cognitive model fit into those? Well, that's right, Mark. When I was trained about 25 years ago, the view was very pessimistic about schizophrenia and psychosis, and it was really viewed to be a form of brain damage. There was damage to certain regions of the brain, including the hippocampus and certain limbic areas, and the presumption was that people with the diagnosis would really never get any better. Mm-hmm. and uh, they would just require medication to control their symptoms and some kind of social care. There seemed to be very little hope in the diagnosis, and it was also heavily stigmatized. And there was also a strong feeling that it was genetically laden, that there would be a gene found that would explain what what caused schizophrenia. Now, as the evidence has accumulated, it's transpired that the brain in schizophrenia isn't actually any more damaged than, say, in chronic depression or in chronic post-traumatic stress disorder. Mm -hmm. And no gene has ever been found that explains the causation. So the more more modern models have said, yes, there probably is a genetic vulnerability, but there are other things like birth trauma, and there's things like maternal viral infection that predispose you to it and they but also there are certain things like the personality of the person and a number of key traumas that that accrue during the course of a person's life and which can trigger the illness now these traumas might be things like really severe bullying at school or we've seen psychosis develop following really quite serious assaults so it's not very much viewed as a mixture of vulnerability and stress. 
And, and the view now is much more optimistic that there can be a better chance of recovery. Yeah, I think the issue about the brain changes um, and the genetics was it came about, you know, with this, everyone was very enthusiastic about genetics and brain changes, but it brought a nihilism, you know, a, a hopelessness um, that, or continued a hopelessness that had been around in the field for, for since schizophrenia was first defined as this ongoing, chronic, deteriorating illness. And yet even way back when, um, 100 years ago, there was clear evidence that people would, um, that only a subset of people um, would enter into this very chronic period. Um, but the, But what you're talking about is, sure, there might be some genetic factors going on there. And of course, you're going to see some brain changes because... Mm-hmm. You see brain changes and everything, but those are probably more related to the stress, the terrible stress um, of a psychotic episode and the terrible stress of the stigma and experiences that psychotic people have to go through um, in, in the world and too often in treatment. And that um, th- there's a lot more optimism which is developed. You know, you're also bringing up this very interesting and new issue about trauma and bullying and the impact of developmental experiences um, on the expression of schizophrenia. I mean, that, that, that data is very... Uh, I'm, I'm only just becoming aware of all of that, but um, is there substantial evidence for those kind of um, influences? I think that the data has been hidden for a long time and it's mostly correlational but the correlational data is really quite strong that the most powerful way to make somebody hallucinate in adulthood is to have some kind of trauma in childhood and and this kind of shows itself emerging into the psychoses not only in terms of the form of the symptom but also in terms of the content and uh, and cognitive therapy is very interested in the content of what voices say and what delusions are actually about, whether they be persecutory or grandiose or whatever. So cognitive therapy really starts to say, following the work of Aaron Beck, that there is actually, within the madness, some kind of sanity in there that that the voices are saying what they're saying for some particular reason, and it's often linked to these developmental issues and traumas and the kind of beliefs that children and adolescents lay down about themselves and their world and the world. So, so these are their schemas. And we feel that the schemas are a very important place to work in treating psychosis. You know, I feel bad because um, when I trained in the psych- in, as a psychiatrist in London um, um, a while back, 20 years, yeah, um, I I would I was taught in a model where you don't really bother getting into the content. It was mad. It was ununderstandable, mm. and um, so you you would just describe you withdraw your contact from the person at that point, as and you would start describing the architecture of their thought process, and yeah. then medicate. And I feel bad because. Um, it probably isolated 
patients repeatedly. They, you know, it must be an awful experience to have someone um, suddenly start examining you um, in terms of the way, the form of your thought, and not and and stop listening to the content of what you're saying. And funnily enough, before my I trained, I think people were used to thinking about the content a lot more. You know, maybe through mm. psychodynamic models, but those had been squelched by biological models and, and sort of more formal systems of psychiatry. And now I think cognitive therapy has really allowed people to refocus on the meaning, which gives you such an ability to construct a narrative of someone's life. Absolutely. The old psychoanalytical models really get squelched by the advent of chlorpromazine and the dopamine-blocking medications, and it was hoped that medicine would really be the answer. And we just stopped listening to the content and the personal meaning. And really the first lesson of cognitive therapy is we must stop ignoring that and really help the sufferer of psychosis to start to understand what their symptoms are all about and to make the kind of breakthrough that Johnny Nash made through in A Beautiful Mind of understanding what's going on here and actually then starting to chart a course for starting to cope better and then hopefully move on to an even fuller recovery. You know, it might be helpful to hear a little bit more depth about that example to give people an idea of what you mean when you say um, getting into the content and understanding and communicating um, on those levels. Could you go in a bit more detail into that example, perhaps? Well, obviously in, the, in John Nash's case, um, he was a very, very famous uh, academic and his work wasn't being recognised and, and what happened there was he got increasingly distressed but his, because his very high quality academic work was not being recognised by his peers he got more and more anxious and then became very deluded and started hearing voices and really talking about this failure of recognition now, it was only later in his life when his work was eventually recognized that he was able to chart his way out of that deluded and hallucinating state. But on looking back, he was able to say, I know what that delusion was for, and I, didn't, I know why those voices were saying what they were saying. So, so that, that's just the kind of the, the Nash-type example. But more and more when I tune in to my my patients' voices, I can understand what the voices are talking about. And they're normally talking about, they're normally very critical, and, and they're normally talking about low self-esteem. That, that's one of the commonest things. And uh, low self-esteem is one of the commonest undergirding issues in the psychosis. So cognitive therapy really tries to improve their self-esteem. And we're saying to patients, you don't have to believe those voices. Those voices are saying that you're a no-hoper, that you're no use, that you've got no friends. Let's look at your life and let's look at the evidence for that and let's see if it's true. Maybe we don't have to believe that. So it's having someone, a big piece of this is having someone who seems to really care to listen um, fight in their corner and say, you know, there are just voices giving one message but I don't necessarily believe it. And Absolutely. And we ignored this for so long, Mark. That's the training that we had. Mm -hmm. We were trained to 
don't get involved in it. It'll make them worse. It'll just reinforce it. Now, I'm Absolutely. sure that's completely wrong. I think ignoring it makes it worse. But when you have an open dialogue about the voices and the delusions, you can have a shared understanding. And people who have really been suffering desperately can start to move forward. That's right. So we're going to take a break in a moment, but before we do, can you say, um, and we'll continue after the break too, can you say where the field is currently around um, CBT or schizophrenia? You know, just how useful is this stuff? Okay, well, the current state of play is that both the NICE guidelines and PORT, the U.S. guidelines, say that CBT is indicated for residual positive and negative symptoms. Now, the effect size on residual voices and delusions is is moderate. So, so there is something to be gained, gained as, as a mean moderate impact on the distress of of voices and delusions. The impact in thought disorder isn't so less well known, but there's definitely an impact on negative symptoms, and it seems like that impact has a durability. You know, I think we're going to take a break, but then we'll come back to this. I want to hear a little bit more about what you mean by residual and negative, um, and then also talk a bit about the work on prevention even and uh, early and earlier phases apart from the residual work. So we'll take a break for now and then speak to you in a few moments. Okay. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. Ladies, are you looking for a place where you can talk candidly about anything and everything? Well, here it is. Timeless Women Speak on the Voice America Women's Channel. We'll talk about sexuality, age-proofing your career, finding your passion and purpose, keeping your brain power, keeping your marriage fresh, dating for grown-ups, plastic surgery, surviving our beauty culture, and much more. Tune in Tuesdays at 11 a.m. Pacific to Timeless Women Speak with Dr. Nancy O'Reilly on the Voice America Women's Channel. Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge is a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting the recovery of families and individuals who experience co occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. Westbridge provides integrated dual diagnosis treatment for adult men and women using evidence based practices. Visit our site today at westbridge.org and discover that doing what works in helping individuals and families gain recovery from dual disorders is important to the staff at Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge utilizes current evidence based practices, consensus practices, and old-fashioned common sense to provide treatment to individuals and families that experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. That's westbridge.org, family-centered recovery for co-occurring mental illness and substance abuse disorders. Step into a healthier you. Voice America Health & Wellness. You're listening to One Hour at a Time with host Mary Woods. If you have a question for Mary or her guest, call now. The listener lines are open. The toll-free number is 1-866-472-5792. That number again is 1-866-472-5792. Now, let's get back to Mary and One Hour at a Time. So, Doug, hi. Welcome back. Doug Turkington. Um, And wanted to... We've continued our discussion about the efficacy of CBT interventions for psychosis. You were talking about residual um, psychosis, that CBT has somewhat of a moderate effect and thought disorder and negative symptoms. So um, what do you mean by residual? Mean well, by residual? That, that means to me, Mark, 
those symptoms where the drugs have done everything they can. So they've had a full course of drugs like um, clozapine, which are known to be probably the most effective medication against the hallucinations and delusions. When they've done all they can, very often there are still symptoms there that are very distressing. And that is what we call residual symptoms. Mm-hmm. And so is, that, is the implication, therefore, that you should go ahead and treat with medication and only after they've done their medication trial, then you can kind of consider the CBT, or is that not right? Well, that is what, what the bulk of the research has said, that that's where the strongest evidence is. But NICE in London have said that cognitive behavioral therapy should be delivered also for acute schizophrenia and that it should be begun in the inpatient unit at the time of the first episode. So so on reviewing all the evidence there is, NICE has extended it from residual symptoms to acute psychosis. They have. Um, and I've mean, I got to say, my experience is you can start introducing the model and start supporting someone and helping reach through um, to their... Um, inner distress and help them make a bit more meaning of their lives from the get-go. Um, and, um, I mean, that alliance is beginning to form and they're beginning to distinguish themselves a little bit from all of the nations and delusions from the beginning. So, I mean, that's certainly my experience. And then in your... Um, and then I've also been noting work on prevention and perhaps very early um, stages where people haven't even declared themselves um, or the diagnosis of uh, full schizophrenia hasn't necessarily been established. Well, I think Uh, this is a very exciting area. And this is the area which has been taken forward in Melbourne and I suppose in Manchester and some other areas of looking at psychotic prodromes where normally young people go through a number of stressors and they then develop sleep disturbance and they start to think they're hearing voices, have a few paranoid thoughts, they're normally very anxious and and it's a state before schizophrenia declares itself. And of course half of these prodromes resolve and half of them become full psychoses. So the theory was that if you treated people with prodromes energetically with CBT or medication, could you actually prevent the development of schizophrenia? And and that's a very interesting area. Now, the, the, the Melbourne research seemed to say, no, you can't prevent it. All you can do is delay the onset. Mm. Now, there's early work out of Manchester shown that there is a possibility, and this trial is still underway. That's Andrew Morrison's group, right? Yeah, yeah, that's right, Tony Morrison's group in Manchester. Now, they haven't reported yet, but their first study did show some evidence of prevention of transition. So so there's a massive trial underway just now, which will address this issue. Mm, Now, before that, there's the issue of can you intervene in at-risk mental states? Now, now this is very controversial. You might look at people who have a very, very heavy genetic loading for schizophrenia and say, okay, even before they ever become become prodrome cases, we're going to give them a course of CBT or give them a low dose of medication in the hope that we can prevent it. So these these are very, very interesting areas. Sorry, please, go ahead. No, I was going to say that the research is uh, being done now, and we'll report within a couple of years.
Yeah, it'd be very exciting research. But I've got to say, when you use the CBT, um, you're providing coping strategies for people which extend way beyond whether their hallucinations or delusions decrease in intensity. Um, but stress management techniques and ways to think through problems and mm, ways yeah. to communicate, which um, ought to have, I would imagine, this is, I guess, what, is, what, gonna, what we're going to find out, hopefully, with some research, ought to have um, benefits in functionality and how people really get on where the rubber meets the road. Um, yeah, the there seems to be evidence emerging of improving social function following CBT, and, and, and that is also very encouraging. There doesn't seem to be evidence that, that the cognitive deficits, you know, the attentional problems and concentration problems really shift that much, but it seems like patients can bypass them and, and really perhaps less ashamed by their voices or less frightened by their paranoia, can really start getting back into life again. And, of course, that was why we called the book Back to Life, Back to Normality, because we could see clear signs of this. Do you want to give me an example, if one comes to mind? Um, well, I'm thinking about somebody who was absolutely terrified and, and, and they had a very severe paranoid delusion They'd been in their flat, in their house for the previous 10 years, and a community nurse came around and gave them an injection of Haldol. They had their depot once a month, but they were still terrified of what they thought was a local gang who were trying to kill them. And when we actually went to see this person, they were sitting in an area of the room where they thought the gang couldn't see them. Now, the house had very thin walls, and he could hear people coughing in the other rooms. And he thought these coughs were the gang communicating with each other. So he'd had 10 years of absolute hell because of this delusion. So what we did was to, to try and help him realize that there's lots of reasons that people can be coughing. And then start to explore the, the pattern of the coughing. When was it happening? And if he changed position in the room... Did the coughing change? Now, as he started to reality test this delusion, he started to think more and more that maybe there might be another reason for the coughing. And in actual fact, it seemed to be mostly related to an old gentleman who was a very heavy smoker. Right. But, but this chap hadn't got that at all. So we were able to look out the window one day and see that this chap was a heavy smoker. He started to realize what was going on. And... We'd, we managed to get him out of the flat. Now, once he got out there, he was very anxious, but we did this with him. We provided a lot of relaxation and uh, a lot of anxiety-reducing rational responses, and we did a behavioral experiment of seeing what would happen as he went in and out of the flat. Now, within about a couple of months of starting this work, he was attending a local day center. He was back in a social functioning role. Mm -hmm. So that, really? that was a, a delusion fairly easily reality tested it, but for 10 years it had been ignored. I know, it, People had done the I mean, best. When I hear you speaking, it's so obvious. Right? Yeah, yeah it, it's, it's so, that's an obvious way in, isn't it? It's, isn't it amazing? For 10 years they got a depot and nobody thought to 
investigate the coughing or get them to do a diary of what times it was happening at and then try and get his anxiety down and try and take him out. Well, I think with the CBT, it breaks down the... We all just make these judgments in our lives um, without thinking. We, uh, well, we think, but without being explicit about it. And the cognitive behavioral therapist is able to break down this into a system of self-examination um, that probably happens in a blink of an eye for most people. Um, and the other thing, of course, is that it might reinvigorate the therapist and the relationship with the therapist might reinvigorate some um, purpose, some hope, some future. So many of us might feel scared to go to a job interview, mm-hmm. but we go to the job interview because we have some responsibilities and we have a vision of how our career, we want our career to go. But people with schizophrenia um, are so often um, told that they're not going to be able to fulfill their dreams. And their families and their treaters bring this feeling of hopelessness also. So that the, the arrow, the direction, the hopefulness of recovery um, gets erased. And so it's harder to challenge those anxieties when you don't have that hope. Absolutely. And that's one of the key things I've I've noticed that people, psychiatrists and mental health professionals who start doing the CBT, not only do their patients become hopeful and invigorated, but the therapists and the psychiatrists really start to enjoy their work so much more because they have a real and developing relationship with their patient, which is actually going somewhere. Mm -hmm. It is so much more exciting to be working in that way. So I want to the go CBT back to good step. for patients and it's good for psychiatrists. It's yes, it's a wonderful experience to be engaged in. Um, I want to go back a second because you were talking about the um, the negative schema, the low self-esteem, mm-hmm. um, which often um, lies behind delusions and paranoia. And this is a, a theme which has been debated for a good hundred years um, or more. Um, and it still feels that there are two different approaches within the cognitive models of psychosis. One that it's a defense against misery and mm-hmm. sadness. And one is that that sadness is perhaps a product of um, the experience of estrangement and hopelessness, but that perceptual anomalies and cognitive um, jumping to conclusions combine with um, some vulnerability factors to produce Mm. um, a psychotic experience. So um, I I just... And it makes a difference as you approach and teach... approach patients and and also teach this technique. So I wanted to hear your perspective on that. Well... Myself and David Kingdom reviewed all of our cases which we'd treated for the last 20-odd years, and we saw that there were a number of psychotic subgroups emerging and that you couldn't explain all of schizophrenia with one simple model. So we thought that there was a group who had genetic vulnerabilities, anomalous experiences, jumping to conclusions, and we felt that that was more like a kind of neurodevelopmental psychosis. But we saw another group which looked much more like a trauma-laden psychosis, 
And this was a group with very vulnerable affect, lots of depression, lots of self-harm, multiple critical and abusive voices. And indeed, in that group, you might often hear the voice of the abuser in a distorted way in the hallucinatory content. And we saw other people who had big delusional systems in middle life, which seemed in some ways to be a defense against misery or shame or anxiety. So, so we saw a number of different subgroups. And, of course, there is a move for the, the name schizophrenia to be dropped from the next DSM mm-hmm. because it's just so stigma-laden. So stigma-laden and, and, as you're saying, erases the, um, the subgrouping, which probably has very different tracks. Um, so we're going to take a break. Maybe we could just mention a little bit about the... Uh, the hopefulness and the recovery, and then I'd like to hear some examples of how you actually do this stuff in the office. So, Doug, um, speak to you in a moment. Okay, thank you. Steps to a healthier you. Voice America Health and Wellness. Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge is a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting the recovery of families and individuals who experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. Westbridge provides integrated dual diagnosis treatment for adult men and women using evidence-based practices. Visit our site today at westbridge.org and discover that doing what works in helping individuals and families gain recovery from dual disorders is important to the staff at Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge utilizes current evidence-based practices, consensus practices, and old-fashioned common sense to provide treatment to individuals and families that experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. That's westbridge.org, family-centered recovery for co-occurring mental illness and substance abuse disorders. Would it be crazy if you just stopped everything, packed your bags and left for a week, a month, a year? What if you left for two years? Would people think you'd lost your mind? What if you were going far away to help in a village on the edge of the Gobi Desert? A village crowded with Buddhist temples, not skyscrapers. A place where there isn't a word for recluse, but a thousand words for community. Would it be crazy to go 5,000 miles from home? To spend time with people the rest of the world only reads about? To build libraries and fill them with stories? Prepare a meal with food you helped grow? To teach children and learn a thing or two about yourself. Would that be crazy? Peace Corps. Life is calling. How far will you go? To find out more, call 1-800-424-8580 or visit peacecorps.gov. A healthy dialogue for your lifestyle. Voice America Health & Wellness. You're listening to One Hour at a Time with host Mary Woods. If you have a question for Mary or her guests, call now. The listener lines are open. The toll-free number is 1-866-472-5792. That number again is 1-866-472-5792. Now, let's get back to Mary and One Hour at a Time. So, Doug Turpenton, um, welcome back, and welcome back to One Hour at a Time. So I just wanted to ask you about this. You know, we're talking before the break about the different subgroups um, that within this very broad and um, vague term schizophrenia and that maybe they have very different genetic, early developmental and environmentally um, influenced um, pathways. They probably also have different 
outcomes. So this brings us to the issue we were touching on earlier, that there's a lot of hopelessness about the long-term course of schizophrenia. But there's been a number of very big trials um, talking about the long-term outcome and really mm. that optimism. Can you say a couple of words about that? Well, I think the Harrison trial was the most um, optimistic one, which was a 20-year follow-up, showing that the majority of patients, if they could survive those very difficult early years with a psychosis, actually had a tendency to improve. And it said that the majority weren't troubled by ongoing voices and delusions. So there is a natural tendency towards improvement across schizophrenia, which is great. But Bloiler always argued for a group of schizophrenias, different psychoses with different components to causation and a different trajectory in terms of the outcome. So, so we really thought when we looked at our group that the neurodevelopmental group could improve a bit but didn't make massive improvements. On the other hand, the traumatic psychosis group seemed to be able to make really big improvements. And if there was a group that was going to go into recovery, it was a group whose psychosis had been strongly triggered more by trauma with a lesser degree of vulnerability. Now, as a group of, of those who are triggered by drug use, very strong cannabis, amphetamine, LSD, drugs that are triggering the psychosis. Now, now, that is a group who are intermediate in outcome, and it depends on whether you can get them to stop using the drugs that perpetuate the psychosis. Right. Um, different outcomes for the, the different subgroups. And do you, um, do you think that you can tell quite quickly through the nature of the symptoms that people are presenting which of the first and second groups you're in, whether it's more neurodevelopmental or more trauma-based. Can you get a feel for that? Just by well, the way, I think there is an overlap there. Because obviously people who are neurodevelopmental, who have a strong family history of schizophrenia and schizotypal personality, they are also to a degree vulnerable to trauma. So sometimes that group are traumatized mm-hmm. due to their vulnerability. Right. So there's a bit of an overlap. Other times we see people who eventually disclose trauma after many years and who we had never known, we'd never really kind of guessed. I think one of the biggest problems is there's a real blind spot on asking people who have schizophrenia as to whether they've experienced a trauma. And, and the reason is that professionals are worried that the patient won't be able to cope with the disclosure. Yeah. And that's not been your experience? No, no. I mean, users tell us, they, they say, we want you to ask us, and we want to ask you to ask us the first time you meet us mm-hmm. so that we know that we're allowed to tell you this key information. But when you, when you go through the notes, and John Reed did this, he found that there was almost no evidence of people asking psychotic patients about any trauma. So again, it was as if the old organic brain damage model was something everyone believed in and and these other factors were kind of getting ignored. Now the main Uh, point here is if you do identify a trauma it's very often something you can work around in terms of cognitive therapy and can actually really understand the symptoms better 
and help them to shift. Right. And, I, yeah. and people with um, schizophrenia have so much vulnerability to this, either through drug use or um, the social scene that they find themselves or how to um, put limits and guide themselves through awkward social situations. Um, and the um, poverty and um, limited um, security that people can um, have. Um, so they're probably at much high, higher risk. I don't know um, if there's any facts and figures on that, but I imagine that on considerably higher risk of incurring some trauma. Oh, very much so. They're at high risk of trauma before the psychosis. Mm. Being psychotic traumatizes you because you believe you're really about to be killed, and, and so that traumatizes you. Right. But after the illness, you're normally rehoused in run-down areas of the city with little social support, and then you're liable to trauma after the psychosis. Yeah. So there's, there's trauma all the way through it, isn't there? So, Doug, because I don't have you for three days, um, I'm going to... Um, let's move into some examples of um, the CBT work and what you do, and this is... This is really laid out, I think, in um, your new book, Back to Life, Back to Normality, which I have not got yet. Is it published yet? Yes, it's published, and uh, it's through Cambridge University Press. It's out and about. It's, it's not a massive, heavy textbook, and it's, it's fairly cheap, and it's written for people with schizophrenia and their carers. Um, and it gives lots of examples of working out what your voices really are and what your delusions are and how you can cope better. We've got lots of coping strategies list. We've got a list of 60 different coping strategies that people can try and uh, examples of how to test out delusions. Now, now, obviously, this is best done with a cognitive therapist, but I've recognized these techniques are safe and that there are so many parts of the world where there just isn't a cognitive therapist. Yeah. And, and I think users and carers need to have access to this information. Oh, I think it's incredibly important. I'm definitely getting the book. Um, <laughs> and, and I think people who are very useful in this are peers, um, users, um, people with um, mental illnesses, because they, they very, are very compelling as they describe their immersion um, from their psychotic experience and coping strategies and they're the ones that are really very very persuasive both for other people participants other users um of the mental health services but and convince therapists to be brave and to smash some um some old-fashioned ways of doing things and to stay away from the neurosis stay away from the the uh emotionality so can you give us a few examples of um, the kind of things that you might do with um, someone who's experiencing some um, some hallucinations, for example? Well, um, one example would be of somebody who was seeing a figure in front of them, and that figure was continually criticizing them, and, and they were hearing this voice criticizing them all the time. Now, this person became very depressed about it all and started self-harming because all they knew was that they were being criticized and criticized. Now, now, as we started to work with this hallucinatory experience, 
the patient started to test it out and started to realize that the voice was only coming on at certain times. It was coming on if she was very overtired or very distressed or when she was on her own and thinking negatively. And she started to try some coping strategies. And, and she got a wee bit of control by using some techniques, distracting herself from the voice. And then she realized when she wrote down what the voice was saying, and she compared it to her own thoughts, the voice was actually speaking her own doubts about herself. Mm-hmm. They were her own... She's really able to regain ownership of that experience. She regained ownership. And she said, these are my thoughts that this figure is speaking to me. And I said, well, are there any truth in what these thoughts say, or are they a bit too negative? And she said, oh, no, I know they're too negative. And we, we developed some rational responses, and we recognized the distortions in what the voice was saying. Now, then she moved from distraction, using music and exercise to try and get her mind off the voices, to actually taking the voices on. And she took the voices on when the voices started talking to her very critically, She would answer back and say, no, I'm not as bad as you say I am. Mm -hmm. I'm actually a reasonable person. I have one or two friends. And okay, I've I've got schizophrenia, but I do my best. And and so you could see her confidence rising as she asserted herself against these critical voices. Now, the critical voices got a bit more critical for a while, and then they backed off. So there was a kind of cognitive dissonance phenomenon here. So we moved from distraction in terms of coping to focusing on the voices. She is now virtually voice-free. She's got, still got her doubts in her own mind, but she uses a cognitive therapy tape with all these rational responses to help her switch off her own negative thoughts. So, so the, the figure and the voices are substantially gone. It's but, fantastic. This um, is progress. She took them on and she beat them. And, of course, this is what John Nash did a long time ago. But he didn't have the help of anything like this book or a therapist or psychiatrist to actually help him make those steps to work through the psychosis. Mm-hmm. Well, Doug, that's a fantastic example and, and really um, something that you get to see every day and something which um, we're privileged to be able to do because, unfortunately, so many... Um, people working in this field just don't challenge it. And well, I think this book could be the best training book because a lot of the manuals we've written are perhaps slightly complex. This book opens with a diary and it says, get a diary, let's see what these symptoms do, let's see how they fluctuate. And it's just full of examples of how you make these shifts. So although this book is written for users and carers, I think mental health professionals will get a lot from it because it makes right. the actual right. strategy. Doug, we're going we're gonna to have to take a break. Yeah. Um, come back in a, in a moment. Okay. Real Life Solutions. Voice America Health and Wellness. To savor something means to delight in, to absolutely enjoy. So why not savor yourself? Author and internationally acclaimed speaker Doris Smeltzer brings her message to the airwaves with Savor Yourself beyond skin deep plan to spend an empowering hour with doris where you will learn to recognize your worth and your beauty beyond society's limited one size fits all mentality 
Savor Yourself with Doris Smeltzer. Mondays at 1 p.m. Pacific, 4 p.m. on the East Coast, only on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge is a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting the recovery of families and individuals who experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. Westbridge provides integrated dual diagnosis treatment for adult men and women using evidence-based practices. Visit our site today at westbridge.org and discover that doing what works in helping individuals and families gain recovery from dual disorders is important to the staff at Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge utilizes current evidence-based practices, consensus practices, and old-fashioned common sense to provide treatment to individuals and families that experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. That's westbridge.org, family-centered recovery for co-occurring mental illness and substance abuse disorders. Dad, can I ask you something? Sure. There's this girl I kind of like. Say no more. You just have to impress her. Okay, but how? Just, I don't know, pick up a lot of heavy things around her. Like what? You know, desks, chairs, people. Grunt if you have to. Grunt? Yeah, be like, oh! There you go. You don't have to be perfect to be a perfect parent. When you adopt a child from foster care, just being there makes all the difference. To learn more, call 1-888-200-4005. A public service announcement brought to you by Adopt US Kids, the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, and the Ad Council. Opinions, options, answers. Voice America Health and Wellness. You're listening to One Hour at a Time with host Mary Woods. If you have a question for Mary or her guest, call now. The listener lines are open. The toll-free number is 1-866-472-5792. That number again is 1-866-472-5792. Now, let's get back to Mary and One Hour at a Time. So, Doug, we left before the break with you saying that this book um, really presents an awful lot of examples and helps guide users and therefore secondarily um, or in collaboration um, the therapists and really might help the expansion of this treatment to more broadly. And it's important to say, I think, that the, the treatment, um, the CBT, um, it's not just a, a closed um, system which is very specific it's it's it really branches out into so many realms of treatment that we already have um so one thing that we're saying in our break is that it it really dovetails a lot with the use of medicine um so yeah we want people to take the medicine in the right dose so it's not gonna it's not gonna um, substitute entirely for the medication. Certainly not a substitution. We find that when there isn't enough CBT and when things like family therapy are lacking, very often psychiatrists respond by giving too much medication. Now, that also isn't good. We want to see the right amount of medication plus CBT, plus the other things people need, vocational rehabilitation, um, befriending schemes, day centers, all of these things that are needed to allow that trajectory towards recovery. So, so CBT is complementary to all of these. I also find that CBT will inform the way that these other therapies are done. So if, you, if, there's, a, if there's a familiarity with the idea of looking at an experience and saying, hold on, what are my beliefs which are driving this? And what set this off? What's the activating event that set this off? And you have a sequence of thinking about your experience instead of just um, fearing it or running away from it. 
Um, then you can do the same with families. It provides a, a way that families can really be collaborative and begin to problem solve and understand the illness. You can do the same with difficulties about getting a job that people fear going into a job site um, because they will be experiencing hallucinations or not manage themselves. You can really apply the CBT in all of these areas and, and certainly with substance use um, and yeah. the approaches to substance use, which is so common in addictions. So do you tend to um, use this as a, as a base and then apply it in different areas in your own? That is the way I see it, Mark. I, th I think these other treatments work much better if there's an individual CBT approach. Now, CBT can be done in groups, but I'm really quite keen to be an individual formulation of what's caused that person's psychosis and what maintains it, and then to work up coping strategies to feel stronger, and then family therapy and a bunch of other rehabilitation also become more viable. So, so I think this is kind of central to the recovery process. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. It, it really opens the door for collaborative discussions. Families, just like psychiatrists and therapists, just like other people in the street, have shied away from getting into these treatments um, or getting into the experience. What, one thing that I think you're talking about in your example of um, the woman who you encouraged really to um, challenge the voices um, one thing that you're describing is that instead of avoiding the experience as something fearful and therefore yeah. something very powerful, you begin to say, hold on. I agree. Anxiety and perpetual avoidance and safety behaviors, that's the main maintaining variable for the psychosis. Avoidance, that, that, that's the big key. We need to start engaging with the symptoms and taking them on. Even though at first that can cause an increase in symptomatology. Well, this is the thing. There is an increase in anxiety as the patient starts to leave that flat after 10 years. There's bound to be, as they start to test their ideas out, could this be something else? But then the anxiety falls, so I think that's our job, is to guide the patient to see there are other possible explanations. They are stronger than they think, and that there are ways of coping and of testing out. And yes, it might get a bit worse for a bit, but then it usually improves. So, D, um, so, so Doug, CBT has that B. Um, that's the behavioural. Yeah. So you also um, use what kind of behavioural techniques that could help with that like, uh, as that anxiety increases? Well, there are a number of... I mean, there's all things like a breathing training and relaxation training, which some patients find beneficial. But we're really asking the patient to use a coping strategy and use a behavioral experiment to test out a delusion. Mm -hmm. So a patient who believes that he can transmit his thoughts telepathically into other people's minds, we want him to actually, first of all, think about the research around telepathy and then to do an experiment to see if this can be done. Mm -hmm. Now, this might mean that he's, and unfortunately it usually does mean that the patient is proven to be wrong. So we need to show him, first of all, the evidence around that subject, which shows that 
that there really isn't much evidence that anybody can do that particularly successfully and that there could be another explanation. For example, that the patient is reading somebody else's body language and is just quite good at reading the way that they're coming over and not actually reading their mind. Mm-hmm. So behavioural experiments are a, a crucial thing. And you also alluded to the fact that increased anxiety um, can wor- was worsening that woman's um, hallucinations at particular times of day. Yeah. And so do you educate people about the influences on that state and the kind of basic self-care things that people can do to help? I think that's such an important step. And in the diaries, we're always looking out, is there a voice? What time of day is it? What were you doing? And then what was the main emotional state you were in? Was it anxiety? Were you feeling ashamed? Were you depressed? Were you angry? So we're trying to link up the affect with their behaviours and with their psychotic symptom. And uh, and then from that, we can work to actually reduce the intensity of the affect and work on basic self-care sort of strategies. So, Doug, how, um, we don't have too long left, but um, how how is this approach to psychosis being taken up now? I mean, you did mention the port and the NICE guidelines, and, um, and how much is it influencing care, and how much is the... Um, the um, peer group, peer community, the uh, the group of users and people who um, have diagnoses of mental illness. How how, how excited are they in, in in using these approaches? And well, I must say, Mark, the uptake in the UK is variable. Some mental health trusts are very energetically getting a lot of CBT into the psychosis in the community and in inpatient wards. Other trusts are lagging behind slightly. In different countries, the implementation is all very different. And in some countries, it's hardly taken off at all. In in the US, there are definite signs of certain centres really starting to develop the use of CBT, of which Boston and San Diego and a a number of other key sites are, are leading the way. But I really think that when I've spoken to users and carers, they have been so enthused at being brought on board into the treatment team. I've been shown the mechanics of how a psychosis is perpetuated and what you can really do to actually start to turn it around. Users and carers are are just crying out for there to be more of this available. And I think maybe some of the carer groups, and I know they're very strong in certain countries, can provide a powerful lobby for CBT to be implemented. Absolutely. Doug, I think we're running out of time. I think we're pulling a minute left. So I want to... So we have about a minute. Yeah, the use... Um, the uptake by peer groups has been crucial because it's, it's a treatment which involves the experience and listens to the to the experiences of, use, of users of healthcare in a far more respectful and collaborative fashion than has previously been permitted. And, um, and yes, I'm certainly seeing an increase here in the U.S. Um, I also want to stress that, um, as we said before, this is very much a, a treatment which enhances the uptake and um, and efficacy of medications and also helps people come down on their doses 
um, because they develop better coping strategies and better way of communicating um, some of the difficulties with their medications, right? Very much so. I mean, obviously, we would say never reduce a medicine until you've spoken to your psychiatrist. Mm -hmm. But if you've had a course of the CBT, we very often find in looking at the, the research that people have come down in their dose successfully. So, Doug, um, Douglas Turkington, um, your book, Back to Life, Back to Normality, um, sounds fantastic. Um, and I'm going to order a copy immediately. <laughs> um, and um, it's been a real pleasure to speak with you. It takes me back to my... Thanks very much, Mark. I've really enjoyed it. So thanks so much. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. We appreciate you joining us today for one hour at a time. Successful recovery from a substance abuse problem or mental illness depends on education and support of loved ones. Thank you for being that support system. Be sure to tune in next week for another hour of education and compassion. One hour at a time. We'll see you next week.